The wheel of time turns and ages come and go, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth, and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. In one age, called the Third Age by some, an age yet to come, an age long past, a wind rose in the mountains of mist. The wind was not the beginning. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the Wheel of Time. But it was a beginning. The Wheel of Time turns and podcasts come and go. Welcome to Wattcast, a Wheel of Time book club, where we read through Robert Jordan's epic fantasy series and watch Amazon's upcoming Wheel of Time TV show. I'm Caleb Wimble, and with me this week are Katie Jarvis. Hello, everyone. Dan Katinsky. Hello. And Keely Frank. Hello. You can find us at wattcast.net and support the show at patreon.com slash wattcast. Your support means a lot. Even $2 helps the Two Rivers tier. Join us on Patreon at the $5 Tarvalin tier, and you'll get access to special bonus episodes once we record those, where we talk about things like Wheel of Time short stories, graphic novels, video games, failed TV pilots, and more. Email us questions, comments, and corrections, because we will make mistakes, uh, via contact at wattcast.net with the subject line questions. We'll answer those here on the show. For those unfamiliar... The Wheel of Time is an epic fantasy series about the battle between light and darkness, as seen this week through the eyes of a poor farm boy who just wanted to enjoy a nice bowl of soup with his dad. Last week we had our inaugural episode. It was such a smash hit, it broke the internet. I hit the upload button, went to share the episode on social media, and immediately half of social just collapsed. Facebook, Instagram, (laughs) WhatsApp, they went down nearly the whole day. Uh, So I don't know, maybe the universe is trying to tell us something. That said, despite only being able to share the episode on Twitter, we got so many downloads the first day. Uh, We are grateful to all of you who listened and are listening today, and we're excited to have the word spread. This week, we're reading the first book in the series, The Eye of the World. We're continuing with chapters 6 to 10. But first, what else has everyone been reading or watching this week? Uh, Katie, I hear you've been watching Why the Last Man? which, as far as I know, is the new FX Hulu adaptation of the comic books of the same name by uh, Brian K. Vaughn and Pia Guerra. Uh, I think Pia Guerra. Uh, Thoughts on that so far? Yeah, um, it's been interesting. I did not read the comics, so I'm coming to it with uh, fresh eyes. Um, And it's... uh, I think I'm up to date, which is about episode six. So I'm kind of getting into the story now. Um, And it's basically a a dystopia about a world where all of a sudden everyone who is a man or more specifically everyone who has a Y chromosome just drops dead. Um, And, you know, like airplane pilots, you know, the planes fall out of the sky and infrastructures Mm -hmm. go down and... um, more so than I even would have expected, the world is just pretty much, um, it, it goes dark. Literally, uh, the power grid is down and the water is down and hmm. everyone's kind of just fending for themselves. Um, and it's it's certainly been interesting so far. I really like the political aspect of it. Um, 
And I, I like to see just, uh, you know, the, the perspective of, okay, what is this going to be like this female only world? Um, but something that I, I've been looking on the internet for any articles that discuss the violent nature of the show. And I haven't really found any, but it's interesting to me because in my perspective, uh, a world with only females would be at least a little bit less violent. But this world is still really, really violent, both in the political sphere and in the, you know, just the, the people on the streets trying to survive. Um, so I think that's interesting. And, and I am trying to kind of decide how I feel about it. Um, the, another thing that's interesting about it is that the kind of two of the main characters that are being followed are the children of the person that comes to be president after the male president dies. Mm -hmm. And the male president was conservative and the woman that comes to take over is liberal. Um, and she's struggling. And the, the only surviving man is her son. And she has to keep him hidden because otherwise everyone's going to freak out and think that she basically did something to, to kill off all men to let herself rise to power. And she saved only her son. So that's oh, kind of interesting. Yeah. So I, I mean, that's some of the, the political nature of it feels realistic to me, which is, I think what I like about it, um, in a really dark and terrible way. Um, and I'm not maybe the biggest fan of the, of the characters, not the actors, but the characters themselves of the mm -hmm. two children. They seem like a little like flippant and, they don't really seem to understand that they're they're lucky, I guess. So they're, but maybe that's realistic. I don't know. Yeah, those are my takes on it so far. <laughs> and um, yeah, it, it's interesting you mentioned the uh, the pervasive violence being something that's taking you by surprise in there. And I kind of wonder to what extent that has been this defining characteristic for me of American post-apocalyptic fiction in the past couple decades like especially especially around the walking dead era and thereafter and i and i think walking dead the comics were coming out they started not long after why the last man or kind of like around the same period but you know those those came to tv way faster than why did and i did read most of the why comics for the, of the first couple years of runs and then i stopped at some point i have sort of felt that there is this really deep cynicism pervasive to the to this genre lately especially the american like almost this american prepper fantasy that no matter what the moment the government goes down all of us will just start to turn into murderous assholes who will kill anyone for a cup of soup like just everyone and that uh at least in like the walking dead and things like it and a lot of things like it that every attempt at new society will devolve into war and death. There's like hardly any cooperation, no real community that isn't secretly full of cannibals or run by a psychopath uh, at, at at every turn. Does it feel like why is kind of leaning into that trend? Oh, of yeah. Post-apocalypse. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think it mirrors almost too closely The Walking Dead um, and mm. all the kind of little societies that are forming, even the ones that seem to give you like this little hope you're like oh is this a good one and then you see something where it's like you know they're beating each other and you're like oh nope definitely not a good one um yeah mm. I, I don't know I, I think the way you said it is exactly right it's so cynical and like maybe I just had this little hope that a, a female world would be like just the, the littlest bit less violent <laughs> And you did mention that it was specifically um, like the, the chromosome 
the Y chromosome or, uh, is what is related to uh, half the world's population getting wiped out. And in this version, which I don't think was true of the comics, am I right uh, from whatever? They've, they've updated the story in some ways uh, in, in that, for instance, there, there are like a, a lot of trans men uh, still still around in the world. But it's specifically it's uh, it's specifically that people don't believe they're going to be able to reproduce anymore. Kind of like um, children of men. Is that like supposed to be the driving fear that's behind a lot of the violence and like the collapse of social order in this one? Is that still like a major theme? Yeah, it is. I mean, there's a there's a scientist that's a main character who does a good job of explaining the fact that like genetics is so complex that there are people that thought they were men or were men or were women that had a different chromosomal makeup than they suspected and they either mm. lived or died. So I think that's interesting. Um, but that scientist is specifically like trying to figure out how how the world is going to continue producing. Um, but it seems so far on episode six that most of the upset is just about the infrastructure and the mm. government going down. And that's what that's what most of the to do and violence is about. At the risk of being too obvious here, or I guess uh, we're we're only just starting to get to this part of the books. That's actually there's a really interesting parallel in your, the vision that this story and why is presenting of a world where women are in charge at the highest levels of power everywhere suddenly, but human nature maybe has not necessarily changed, or that there's something about the structures of power that are still causing all this war and violence to happen. And I, I'm curious if we'll come back. Maybe at some point, if you're continuing to watch why and we're continuing to read Wheel of Time to the parallels of a world where while there are while, you know, nothing quite so nothing quite like that happened. But we do have here, right? We already know there's been this apocalypse a long, long, long time ago. The aftermath of which was what it seems in the prologue was that all the men who could channel the one power went insane and destroyed the world. And now the only the only people who channel the one power and who have and who have this um, sense of authority and control and the ability to tap into the magic of creation are women in Wheel of Time. And it'll be interesting to see uh, maybe a, a little bit this week and probably more next time how this world is interpreting those politics and, wh and whether things are different around that. I was just going to say, I'll be interested to see the how the power structure uh, continues to develop. Yeah, for sure. In the eye of the world. Dan, I hear you have some thoughts uh, on the new Broadway musical adaptation of Smash. <laughs> just it's a good picture of like what bad writing can do to television. Uh, I, I haven't watched a show like that in a long time where plot lines are just forgotten in a few episodes like or even the next episode it was extremely jarring it's like i don't know what went on in the writer's room or what happened with the production that like one of like the central plot lines they were building in the first episode around the protagonists like the, the main two writers and like producers of the show they just like forget about it in the span of like an episode or two it becomes such a mm. background thing so it's like stuff like that was just super jarring we finished oh, um, oh so you're the, you're watching the tv show that has just gotten a Broadway adaptation. What 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 is Smash exactly? Like what's what's the the short? Uh, so yeah, just thing? just for those that haven't um, watched or heard about it, it's a, tw a 2012, I believe, um, TV show based around the concept of two cr um, Broadway creators that have had success in the past, and they're working on a new musical based around Marilyn Monroe. Um, oh, and the okay. whole the whole concept is them trying to it's it's the workshopping phase and them trying to get this through. Um, the writing and the staging and everything and and the mm -hmm. performances 
And it centers around two characters that are fighting for the role of Marilyn. Um, one's like um, a woman from nowhere who has no background in Broadway, but is super talented. Mm-hmm. And then one's like kind of a failed Broadway star who's like kind of a background figure and hasn't been able to get a leading role yet. Um, and they're both fighting for that position. It's kind of, they're the central figures, but it kind of bounces around between these two women um, fighting for that role. And then the two creators, like the writer and the musician that are are creating the story along the way and trying to put the pieces together in the workshop phase. So um, it became popular because the music is actually quite strong. Um, it's a mm. strange mashup between covers from mo- like like modern pop songs and such and also like an actual musical in there and they'll, they do the numbers. So I, I personally think the musical numbers from the Maryland show that they're producing um, called Bombshell are actually really strong, and I, I've enjoyed listening to them. They sound like right up Broadway's alley. Um, mm-hmm. But the covers are extremely weak, and they're just so generic that just, it, they seem very unnecessary, and they don't really contribute to any of the character development. So, what are they doing? Like thing, things like Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, and like fam- famous pieces that Mar- that Marilyn did. Not so. The Marilyn stuff is all original content. So, um, which is fascinating. So the soundtrack is like the the Marilyn music is made for the the Broadway show within the show. Um, mm-hmm. So that's nice because it's original pieces. They flow really well and they actually contribute. So like while they're workshopping these characters, they try to do parallels. They don't all they're not always successful. Like the writers of the show, um, the actual like smash show are not successful at merging the concepts. But essentially, there's supposed to be parallels between them writing and like the songs they're singing in the workshopping phase and what's going on with their personal lives. And it's it's mm-hmm. really hit or miss. And especially with the cover music that's not related to the Maryland show, it often feels very tacked on just to have a musical number. So um, I do love musicals and I, I think there's just, it's, it's really sloppily done. I know people love to, I mm-hmm. was like researching reviews and apparently people love to hate watch smash as a term. So it's like <laughs> people enjoy hating something so much they watch it. So it's like by the second season, apparently there's such a drop off in quality. Um, my husband doesn't even want me to watch it. So <laughs> we only watched the, he only wanted me to watch the first season and that was it because he likes that. <laughs> so a lot of mixed reactions, but people apparently like it enough that it is sort of getting a Broadway release next year, potentially. Huh. But but that's been in limbo, so who knows if they'll actually come out. But yeah, mixed bags all around, and I've just never seen writing that clunky. Like, the protagonists by the end of the show mm. don't actually grow at all. They actually revert back. Like, the middle half of the show has character development, and then it like literally reverts by the end of season one, so nothing really feels like no one grew. There's not a lot that goes on. But there's some good musical mm. numbers, so it's definitely a mixed bag for anyone interested in watching something like a musical show they haven't seen yet. It almost sounds like maybe we should just watch the musical numbers on YouTube. Would that would that be sort of an enjoyable way to experience the best of the show without watching the yeah, drama? They're, in between? Yeah, they're pretty strong. So, I mean, I, I enjoy them. Um, there's, mm. I've gotten a couple, I don't know if it's just like the catchiness of the tune has been stuck in my head for a couple of them, but... The TV show is really, really just background noise. There's there's not a lot of investment in any of the characters. Well, Keely, I hear you're a little bit more excited about things you've been reading this past week, uh, two graphic novels in particular. Yeah, so I love reading middle grade and kind of younger mm-hmm. kind of spooky books, and that includes graphic mm-hmm. novels. So middle grade is, is before young adult. So there's like kids mm-hmm. books, middle grade, young adult for context. Um, especially because when I was little, I was terrified of everything. And <laughs> they, like, the guidance counselor tried to find books that I could read that would, like, showcase that, like, it's okay to be scared instead of it just being, like, straight up goosebumps, which scared me. Mm. <laughs> um, so I'm, like, 
going back into the kids section, finding all these amazing ones. And so I found two yesterday that I'm obsessed with. Um, so there's one called Garlic and the Vampire by Brie Paulson. And hmm. it's literally about a little little girl that's garlic. Like her head is like a garlic bowl. <laughs> and uh, she works on a farm with other vegetables for a witch named Agnes. And garlic is just this anxiety ridden, like every day she's panicked. She's afraid everyone hates her. She thinks people are like doing things to make her mess up. Like she's so anxious. One day there's like smoke coming from the local castle. And so now there's a rumor that there is a vampire back in the castle. And they're like, well, garlic, you should go. And she has to discover <laughs> if she's brave or not. It is amazing. And like little little girl Keely is so happy to find a character that is anxious and spooky and like trying to do things in life. So I highly recommend that one. And then that one's pretty short, but there's another one called Death and Sparkles by Rob Justice. And it's literally a unicorn named Sparkles. That's like a social media pop star. And then Death. So he's literally going around and he's who gathers souls, but he hates the paperwork part of doing all mm. that like if he touches you you die but then he has to fill out a bunch of forms and he's like a major procrastinator and he's never been able to have a hug or do a high five or a fist <laughs> bump because people die and then there's sparkles who just wants to eat cupcakes and like be a regular unicorn but has to work for like her manager and like do all that stuff and uh sparkles ends up coming to like an untimely demise and that's how they meet and then the two of them realize that like they're best friends <laughs> it's adorable but i just love that there's all these things for kids that are like covering darker topics like the whole beginning mm -hmm. of of uh, death and sparkles is this section that says like death doesn't care uh if you're big tall short small young and old two-legged or eight one fatal touch from the cold hand of death and your soul is shuffling off this mortal coil. And then there's a, like, I'll show you guys. You're not going to see it, obviously. But it's spiders grieving another spider that died. Mm -hmm. And it said death can be many things. A sad experience, a sigh of relief, or a celebration of life. And I'm just like, oh, hmm. Like, <laughs> I wish that these things had existed, you know, when I was a kid. And I just love that people are making these now to open those conversations with kids instead of just like no they're fine those sound awesome i'm writing those down I, i'm writing those down so when my daughter can read i can give them to her <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're so good there's also another one that someone just started it was kind of like a a tolkien-esque type thing where like i think he used to tell his kids the story and then made it into a graphic novel but it's about um ham helsing who is a, a pig <laughs> family and so his pig family is known as vampire hunters and he's always been kind of left behind. And then he has to come into his own as a vampire hunter. But he's a pig. <laughs> it's like, these things are so ridiculously cute, but really dark. And I absolutely love that mix. So that's kind of reading. Those, I've read a couple things this week, but those two definitely stand out. Yeah, yeah like you, you just made me like, I forgot how creative kids books can be often compared to adult books like the creativity from just the descriptions you gave is so vibrant and interesting and it's like I sometimes feel like adult media is so lacking of that and it's so kind of retread on each other whereas like kids media there's a lot of you really have to inject some newness into things and have like a lot of fun with the concept so 
just crazy how like colorful like those descriptions you just gave are compared to a lot of like the dullness of like adult media that we're discussing. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's been really fun um, reading books that are more lighthearted, but also kind of topics that I like. So like most of my books, nonfiction as well, are kind of like creepy or weird. Um, mm. But mixing in with like their little like vegetables is <laughs> like so creative and amazing. And I I definitely get a lot of joy out of them this garlic art is so cute the garlic and the vampire oh my God. Pa- panels that i'm looking at uh she's so expressive in i'm guessing this looks this looks like it's probably is this this is a, an, an american or western yeah. graphic novel okay uh but garlic's garlic's face remind it's very manga like expressions yeah. a, a lot of it like the the sets that she goes through and the the emotions and reactions She's uh, a freelance artist that started focusing on web comics. So apparently she has a web comic I haven't read it yet for adults mm. called Patrick the Vampire, but then she decided to do kids book uh which is a, yeah, her first traditionally published book. Very cute. I, I think I'm going to have to check this one out as well. <laughs> My Brie Paulson. Um I I've been reading and watching um a surprising number of things when I went back and reflected on it because I really didn't think I had any spare time <laughs> the, the past week and change. But it turn, turns out I, I still did anyway because uh, my, my partner Eric and I rewatched the whole Matrix trilogy in prep for the new movie coming out, um, kind of like we're doing with this podcast. Uh, and I, I had a, two big takeaways, one which was that The Matrix had me thinking a lot about Wheel of Time because it also fuses all sorts of religious symbolism. It has all these biblical uh, names and messianic prophecies alongside Hindu and Buddhist concepts and uh, continental philosophy that they're, they're shoving in there left and right. Um, and I say rewatch, but I should say I'm using that term loosely because I realized in this that this was the first time I ever stayed awake through all of Revolutions, the third movie in the trilogy, which starts out really dull. That has not changed. It's like a really boring uh, first hour of that film and the ending eh, it's I, I'm I, I don't think it quite gets there on the big Christ-like sacrifice that ne- Neo winds up doing a- as the chosen one spoilers for a 20 year old movie uh there I guess but I was really surprised at how much I enjoyed Reloaded this time the second Matrix movie so many of the iconic action scenes and fight scenes and chases I remembered being like Matrix things turned out to be reloaded scenes not from the first film and they kind of blended together in my mind and I wound up thinking it's sort of the movie sort of amplifies all the strengths of the first movie the 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 fight choreography this mix of of Hong Kong movie style Jackie Chan martial arts meltdowns and and Chinese wuxia films with the wire launches and everything and these uh, these incredible then hitherto hardly ever done slow-mo sequences where they were using dozens of cameras so they could circle all the way around Neo and everything. All that stuff is even bigger and reloaded. There's Trinity just opening, opening with the most incredible half hour of like the motorcycle out the skyscraper and doing all her incredibly badass stuff. And then you get that huge um, like hour long set of fights and car chases in the middle. But then it also does the same thing as the first Matrix where people will just not shut up for long stretches of time uh, about <laughs> about a sort of kind sometimes very shallow read on the philosophizing they're doing. And it's a lot of interesting ideas 
Uh, and the world itself is really interesting, the world building that the Wachowski sisters are building up there. But at the same time, it's just so much talking. And by the time it gets to the, the Merovingian, the Frenchman, and he's, he's going on about free will and whatever that has to do with the, the orgasm cake that he's delivering to an unsuspecting woman in the cafeteria, which is just like a completely weird and, and bizarre tangent of a scene that those are real, the, the weak, where the weaknesses really stood out for me. Um, and I guess I'll just mention in passing, we watched the HBO Many Saints of Newark follow-up movie that is a prequel to The Sopranos uh, that just launched out, uh, which I can't recommend to anyone. And everyone I know who watched it, who was a fan of The Sopranos, feels like exactly the same way. It just felt really dull and unnecessary and added almost nothing to it and just... Anyway, it, it didn't even feel really uh, worth mentioning. And it sounds like a lot of us caught the trailer for HBO's new Game of Thrones prequel series, House of the Dragon, starring Emma Darcy, Doctor Who's Matt Smith, and many, many others. Oh, what, do, what do we think? Is, that, is anybody still interested in more Game of Thrones TV, or are we completely burnt out after that last season? So I'll, I'll say that I am... To an extent, interested because the Targaryens, I think, for me, were the some of the most interesting. If they did an entire series on the Mormont family, I would be way more involved. Mm. Um, but because I love the Targaryens so much, I do kind of want to see what they're going to do with it. Um, but I also, I never read the Dance with Dragons, the last book that's since been that you know came out, and so mm -hmm. I feel like. There's going to be a lot of lore that I just don't understand that I was able to keep up with the uh, first show because I was reading the first few first few books at the same time. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, my husband and I watched the trailer and he was like, oh, I wonder if it's referencing this event. What the hell are you talking about? Because <laughs> like, he's watched all of those like deep dive 40 minute long uh... YouTube videos that connects everything. <laughs> and I just don't have the energy for that. So I'll probably watch it and enjoy the fact that I know nothing that's going on. And then, you know, watching Matt Smith in a really weird environment, I think is going to be fun. With quite the wig. Oh He's my got God. The, full, the full Targaryen silvery white hair thing going on. <laughs> it's going to be I'm interesting to watch accent. it. Um, I think it's interesting that it takes place like so far in the past. So I, I think that'll just be like a, like, I like that. So it can all seem fresh and new, and maybe it will bring up some new, interesting dynamics. Similarly to Keely, I also didn't read the last book, which is funny. I mean, I don't even know why. I think I'm going to still. I just haven't done it yet. So maybe I can get myself to do it before, before the show, or maybe I'll do it alongside. I don't know. <laughs> all right, let's pick up with the reason we are all here. Let's dive back into the eye of the world. This again, this week, we are reading chapters six to ten. Keely, uh, however, you picked up on some key details we forgot to mention last time. I think it was related to the reason Tam and Rand are even home in the first place where we left them. Yeah, so I realized that that's something we just completely missed, which was that they shouldn't have been home to begin with. Um, they even said, like, typically when, is it Beltine? Beltine? Mm-hmm. Whenever that festival happens, they stay overnight kind of in town because their farm is relatively far away. But because of what's happening in the world 
or at least, you know, their immediate world, they decided to go home. And so I did, I flipped through to see, like, what the specific details were. And on, like, page two, you know, Rand and Tam are walking down, like, this long stretch of road, going to the village. And Rand keeps, like, looking over his shoulder and feeling, Mm -hmm. like, really freaked out. And he says it's because the wolves have come down from the mountains and they're attacking all of the sheep. They're also attacking the men. And that also they're starting to see bears again for the first time. Um, Mm. So, like, clearly there are things happening uh, that would give kind of, like, a heads up to the reader that something is changing in the world. But there, it doesn't seem like any of them have made connections yet with what's going Mm. on. And we did all mention that the winter has been lingering Mm -hmm. much longer than it should have, right? And, like, uh, we had some of the the busybodies of the village, Kenbui in particular, being all snipey about Nynaeve and, and why Nynaeve, the village wisdom, said that they were going to have a, 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 you know, a nice short winter, but it's lingering on way too long. And we're about to have this the big spring festival and we're still having this like real chill holding on in the cold, which is interesting thinking of Game of Thrones too. The, the amount of recent, well, I say recent, the past 30 years, big fantasy fiction where seasons being off and, and something about weather patterns being uh, a, a harbinger maybe of things to come. I don't know. Could that, does that have anything to do with the, uh, the moment we find ourselves living in historically <laughs> possibly, or is it a pure coincidence that it sounds so much like our own experiences, Dan, as you pointed out in uh, feeling uh, very Pennsylvania ish in these seasons that are around months longer than they're supposed to or disappearing months before they should. They're just never showing up at all. Very likely it could be, but I, I feel like there's so much just around like weather and seasons lately. So it does seem fresh on our minds with everything going on. Um, even this new sci-fi short film I was watching the other night was really focused around the environment and kind of the change there. So it seems to be a trend, especially with the like this book and kind of just the, as you were mentioning, <laughs> Game of Thrones and some other things going on. So, Keely, would you like to briefly summarize what happens in this chapter, chapter six, the Westwood? Yeah. Um, and real quick, I was like right before you brought up Dan mentioning that it's like Pennsylvania. I literally thought like they he's treating Nynaeve as the groundhog. That's like she didn't say okay. there's going to be six more weeks of winter. There <laughs> is. So just like that was perfect timing in my brain. Um, so this. Yeah, it was at this point that I, I texted you, Caleb, where, you know, I said, if anything happens to Tam taking us mm-hmm. all out um well <laughs> he gets attacked because the oh crap what are they called the trollocs mm-hmm. is that what they're called yeah have come through he tells rand like run away i'm gonna defend us um and then rand ends up getting his dad and like finds him in the woods and then creates some kind of i guess it's like a sled is that that's how i was picturing it whatever he's dragging him on And so he gets his dad on there, ties him down, and then realizing, like, he's seriously injured, starts dragging him through the woods towards the village. And uh, Tam is kind of, like, in and out of it. Sometimes he's lucid, sometimes he's not. And then he just, like, drops this massive bomb about how, like, hey, I might not be your dad. I might have found you, but I'm going to (laughs) pass out again. And it's, like, life-altering for Rand, but his dad's going to die, so who cares? Let's keep going. Yeah, to, to that point, I just find it hilarious the amount of times, like, 
he drops that and then it just goes into everything else but there's so many points where rand's like he's my father and it just keeps happening it's almost like comical <laughs> like every time there's like the thought in his head or someone mentions his father he's like he's my father it just keeps repeating and it's just it's a little i know it's supposed to be serious everything he's, he's like traumatized by this revelation but it just it comes off very comical it's like some serious denial. That's what I was feeling. I was like, oh, yeah, he's really struggling with his denial right now. And in between the fever dreams, Tam is like, or in the fever dreams, I guess, as he's like babbling on about all the stuff he's seeing. And, and I guess that comes up initially because he's babbling on about Rand's mother. But but regardless, he, he's going through and, he, and he's like mentioning something about a mountain and find, finding this babe and like, oh, you know, we, all, we always wanted a child that he brings home from this war that he's in. But he's also like dropping huge lore bombs in gen in general uh, about uh, this war that that he was apparently involved in in some way. Despite that we, as far as Rand knows, his dad has never had anything to do with the war. He mentions Avenderosa. It said it makes no seed, but they brought a, a cutting to carry and a sapling. And he's going on about this uh, the, uh, the tree of life uh, that was brought uh, to Carrienne, uh as a gift. Uh, it sounds like, and then. Um, Grew for 500 years, and then someone named Layman cut the tree down, and then there was a blood war started over this. So we're get we're getting a whole lot of detail here. I'm, I'm curious again, like are, are all all this stuff, all all this this lore, because you know even though these are flashback fever dreams for Tam, that's kind of what he's doing. He's giving more of the world context here. Uh, did did all of this just get sort of completely overwhelmed by the revolution for for Rand at this point and who he is? Yeah, I think uh, at least how I was reading it definitely did, where it was kind of like, you know, as you're driving it down the road and you're just kind of like zoning out and then you might see something weird out of the corner of your eye and like, wait, what was that? Eh, I don't care. Mm -hmm. I'm going to keep going. So <laughs> that's kind of what it feels like of like, you know, they're just like dropping all of these hints, hoping that I'm going to remember any of this when they do any <laughs> kind of big reveal. Um, And, you know, we were just talking about the Game of Thrones, we got so attached to those like lore moments just to be let down in the end. So I feel like, mm. you know, going into this, I'm just kind of like, okay, if they talk about that more, that'd be kind of cool. But his dad's about to die. So I don't really care about anything else. Yeah, it does seem to be the more pressing concern here. Uh, so yeah, Rand, Rand is pressing on denying the things he's hearing. You're no, you are my father and, and all that. We get to chapter seven out of the woods. Uh, Dan, what, what happens in this chapter? So in chapter seven, Rand like eventually reaches the village and then to his shock, he finds it burning after an attack from the Trollocs and um, this uh, cloaked figure that was kind of leading the Trollocs to the village. Um, the village wisdom, who I'm, I'm always going to butcher her name because I still don't know. Did we discuss this last week? This one specifically, is it Nineveh? Nineveh. 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 Tries to like I, I believe save... it's yeah. Oh <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm going to keep butchering it, but I'll do my best to try to try to get it right. So Nynaeve tries to like save Tam, but she's unsuccessful at this, and she says there's nothing that can be done, and that he's too far gone. So Tam's getting um, worse, and Rand's freaking out. So then he thinks um, that the mayor can help, and then along the way, Moraine is revealed as like an Aes Sedai, and um, he's eventually able to like get her to help him by like her using her magic to help Tam. Um, so she calls up the one power to heal Tam. Um, and he's by the end of the chapter, it seems like he's going to make it through. Yeah. Some more revelations about, uh, about the characters here. Yeah. I guess this is, this is the moment we have confirmed uh, that more, that Moraine is an Aes Sedai 
for the first time. And I guess apologies if I made that clear last last time through just not remembering that that was something that is not really established for the characters, even though we we do see like her serpent ring and everything. When 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 Rand acts appalled about this, uh, one of the characters, I forget who it is, is like, what, did you expect they ran around wearing signs saying I to die on them or something like that or had had uh, the dragon's fang tattooed on their forehead, which then also becomes all either right before or after that a, a plot point where somebody scrawls the dragon fang, which it seems to, is like the black half of of the um, the yin yang or or tai chi symbol on the inn door, and it's like this big uh, big sign of evil, right? Like you're you're marking the place as uh, well. I don't know. I don't know what we really find out about it. Um, here, somebody throws around the term dark friend and is here where we uh, we almost start to get like a, a you can you can feel a mob forming around around the fact that everybody knows who and what Moraine is now and, and what she's capable of doing around here. Uh, and they also they also figure out what, what that Lan is a, a warder. Uh, they call him right at this point. Yeah, he's definitely revealed to be one. And it's kind of any doubts that the reader has by this point, it's, it's obvious that these two are both um, an Aes Sedai and um, Land being a warder. I thought it was interesting that the, everyone seemed totally fine with like the healing power that Nynaeve could, could use. But then when the Aes Sedai is going to use the power, it's like, oh gosh, it's like making a deal with the devil type thing. So I, I don't know. I just thought that was interesting because there, there is already this culture of wisdoms in every village that have powers. Um, but mm-hmm. then do they, uh, oh, maybe not. <laughs> it's very, it's very interesting. You say that uh, I'm just, I'm just curious, like whether we've, um, cause I, I think that's not made that's not said at all, at all up until this point, unless I'm mistaken, but you fully, you have intuited something about the way that Nynaeve is doing her healing and like the poultices and herbs and, and bandages and everything. Hmm. I guess I was just making assumptions then. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they did seem pretty complacent with it, but it kind of mirrors real life in a sense. So that didn't seem too jarring to me, but it is fascinating that you bring that up, Katie, because it's like, I don't know, I think about even like religions and kind of customs. We're so like, you can you think like not to really bring religion into it, but like Christianity and like um, like other religions. Of, there's a lot of similarities, but then you talk to members of those different groups, and they feel like there's like vast differences between them. But to an outsider, it seems so subtle, mm. and it seems like there's a lot of like connections there. Whereas like in those organizations, a lot of folks feel like there's like differences. So it's like that mm. perspective there, and kind of like the tales that have been told. I think they even address that with like the height of the mask or the dark rider or whatever. Um, that Rand's talking about, he he was told they'd be like, what was it, 10 feet tall or something crazy, and he had different perceptions about what that would be, and then the I think uh, Land corrects him on that and kind of the the false con- like misconceptions that they're holding to. So the, I think there's like supposed to be more similarities and it's supposed to be more grounded than they realize, but mm-hmm. I think there's this whole like mystical kind of um, evilness or kind of cr- like these tales have been really tall that they've heard and kind of just accepted as fact for like, or or at least that's what they've all, all they've known for like so many years. So they just kind of, that's the worldview they have. And speaking of like what these people are capable of and what Moraine is capable of, you had said something, uh, Keely, last time about really hoping that we get to find out Moraine is some sort of, you know, like secret 
powerful badass, lo and behold, the thing that we hear that happened here at the village uh, in, in the meanwhile was that she was calling down like ball lightning and throwing these big... I guess balls of lightning roll, rolling down uh, through the through Trolloc ranks and everything. Yeah, and so it was, I kind of feel like, you know, just talking about the difference between um, Moraine and uh, Nynaeve, whatever. <laughs> that, um, you know, Nynaeve kind of feels like a cottage witch to me, mm-hmm. and Moraine kind of feels like the lady that comes into your town does like, you know, it's all like those memes, like, does a really simple magic trick and all the white men are like oh, a witch <laughs> it's like <laughs> that's kind of how she feels to me um can we talk about for a second though they spent a decent amount of time talking about she's holding some kind of like itty bitty statue that like mm. she took with her that has some kind of meaning or power and i feel like i just didn't really understand what that was is that like where she's getting her power from does she like channel it through that is it like a good luck charm like i don't know what that is from from what I gathered, from what we know, and, and Caleb probably has a lot more information having like read the series prior, but it's like an enhancer to her ability. So she like talks about they like lent it to her. So I think the the guesses that I have are it's just like they have power and they can pull from this one power, but this talisman that or like this little statue um, is like a relic of the past that they like an art form they used to have in making these and it kind of just enhances their power and there's so few that like it was I remember her like saying that it was like she almost didn't get the council to give it to her uh, on her mm. travels and she's like very thankful she had it because it, it gave her the ability she mentioned she has abilities but it kind of gave her enough strength to kind of like pull off what she did with the lightning and kind of warding off um, the enemies from the prior night the, the difference between reading this as a child and reading it now <laughs> the thing you just described now I'm picturing Moraine like filling out the the the, the corporate laptop loaner <laughs> form and going through the layers of bureaucracy in the White Tower to to check out one of the these Angriol, uh, Land calls it for for travel purposes. I mean, like, mm, I don't know if we can spare the resources this week. We've been under budget for so long, um, and like, do you really need it? I mean, you're going to the Two Rivers, right? All right, do you really need the 5G-enabled device? Isn't the local <laughs> Wi-Fi going to be sufficient? That's great. We get a, I think what, to me, is an interesting exchange between Rand and Moraine, right? Because he go, he goes, Rand goes to Nynaeve, and he's like, please help my dad. And, and Rand, or Nynaeve is in, like, full triage mode. She's, go, she's helping dozens of people who've been, like, badly injured, burnt, or everything. And she looks at him, and I think her conclusion is, is, is kind of just, like, this he's all he's deeply infected uh he's got this really bad fever i cannot like i cannot i don't have antibiotics i don't <laughs> i don't have penicillin I, there's nothing i can do at this point there's no there's no like nothing i can dig out i've got to go help the people in in this emergency room uh who i can sew up or 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 apply my poultices or whatever to get it get him healed so rand goes to moraine after going to the mayor and he's like fine and he seems to realize he is he has this moment where he's like fumbling and taking a deep breath and, and then makes this promise. Uh, I'll pay any price in my power if you'll help him anything. And then, of course, Moraine is kind of cryptically musing to herself. Any price. Hmm, we'll speak of prices later, Rand, if at all. I can make no promises. And, you know, uh, and then, you know, of course, talking about uh, what, what the wheel wills, the wheel weaves as it wills land, land and, and all this stuff. So that fits in with the kind of some of the stories we've heard so far about Aes Sedai, right, of be, be wary of making bargains with them. And this seems all in line with maybe, you know, traditional 
European cultural understandings of what a witch is and making and make you or, you know, in, in Russian or Slavic folklore going and making a deal with Baba Yaga or something like, you know, it's a bad idea and, and you know that something is going to be demanded. Yeah, I thought it, so just following up from last week's episode, it paints in. So all three of you seem to be a fan of Maureen. And I get why now, because all of you, I think you, you, you three had read five chapters more. So you had this context last week, whereas she's such a more fascinating character now with this context and the mm. way she's acting and everything. She's like the best character so far in terms of like, she's interesting. She has like the, the way he describes her and the way she's act, like the way she um, changes her appearance and kind of her mannerisms and all that and the stoicness of that. It's very fascinating versus like the pixie view that she kind of gave Brandon. He even mentions that too, that she she seems different after this. She's like weary, um, but she's still stoic in a sense. So it's like, she's very fascinating. And I didn't get that when I first introduced her. So I think it just painted in kind of like, you guys had like a lens that I was like missing there. So it's like, why is everyone so into this character? Because she's just like <laughs> the manic pixie that comes in with like this coin and then kind of leaves. And that's the only context. Um, and now that's putting the pieces, like the puzzle pieces together. And like, okay, she's becoming a much more interesting character compared to like the general cast so far that we've met. Did anyone else think of Moraine during the thunderstorm on Monday night when there was like these crazy cracking bolts of lightning in the sky. Just, I mean, I'm from the East Coast, so I've been mm. in many thunderstorms, but I've never experienced one here in Los Angeles. So I was like, well, I, I was just like, oh, this is interesting. You know, are there like forces at work right now? I'm not sure. <laughs> Katie, I, I actually texted uh, Dan and some of my other siblings uh, about that storm that started where I was like, well, it's official. I'm a Southern California resident now because there's <laughs> weather happening. And I am like, what the, what the hell is going on? Like nobody called for this. No one predicted this. It's, it hasn't rained in, in eight months or. Right. And, and I'm thinking there's like magical forces at play because that's what it means when there's a thunderstorm <laughs> in Southern California. <laughs> So that brings us to chapter eight, a place of safety. Uh, Katie, if you would like to let us know what, what happens next in the story. Sure. So chapter eight, um, we have uh, Moraine and her warden, Lan, Lan, Lan. Uh, they, they kind of give us an explanation of what's going on. Um, the dark one uh, is, is hunting for boys the same age as Rand, Matt, Perrin, and Perrin. Um, and for this reason, uh, Rand, Matt, and Perrin are going to have to leave Two Rivers, which is uh, kind of a huge revelation um, and really scary for all of them. And um, it, I think that's just an interesting plot point for you know someone that never expected to explore far beyond the place they came from. And now in order to preserve the safety of those that they care about and the place that they grew up, um, they're going to have to leave it. So, uh, I mean, obviously that's a great setup for the adventure ahead. Um, but it's also just sort of interesting to think about, um, that, you know, s some people are just born wanting to leave where they came from and other people feel mm. like they're going to be there forever. Um, but, but maybe they're not. <laughs> and perhaps the one character who is desperate to get out of here and who wants to go along we have not been privy to her perspective yet uh and and to what's motivating her to want to get out of here so we kind of have her is it is it here uh that well multiple characters show up who were not invited to flee uh who are like nope we're coming along right like the first one we have they're having the secret conversation and and tom marilyn the 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 gleeman is like 
chilling, taking a nap up up in the rafters or something, and just comes like uh, like tumbling down at this point here in chapter eight. And and I and I don't know if I'm getting a chapter ahead, but but Egwene is also like showing up and be like, nope, I'm coming too. This sounds amazing. I am absolutely getting out of here. Uh, the, then Aes Sedai has showed up and she wants to take y'all to the White Tower and you don't want to do this? Like Rand's dragging his feet and just like has no desire to leave and everything. But Egwene is all about getting out of here. Um, and I feel especially the moment where Tom like fall, falls down out of the hay, that is such a, a, a Sam showing up outside the window of, of Bag End where Gandalf is conferring yeah. with Frodo about how Frodo needs to go on the run. Like we're still very much in Fellowship of the Rings territory here, right? Yeah. And then of course P- Pippin and Merry show up too. Except here we're learning quickly Apparently there is not a ring of power. It's more like uh, these three teenagers are kind of the the potentially dangerous object that they that need to get out of here because they're going to draw uh, the dark ones wrath or more more Trolloc hordes down down on the two rivers and all their friends and and family. I definitely thought also uh, of the fellowship there, um, and I also I I think this maybe is one chapter ahead. But, but I liked how it kind of kept echoing that like, well, I suppose this is all part of the plan and this is part of the pattern. And so I thought that echo was, in, it, that intrigued me. I was like, okay, so there's this kind of sense that things are the way that they're meant to be. And that's like how the, the mm. journey is going to proceed. Yeah, but that's kind of like Moraine's whole deal so far, right? She is there. It feels very, very religious in a sense to me or, or but also this this philosophy that she has of it's not just that she doesn't dwell on the past it's the moment things happen like the second something happens she's like well that that's that's happened can't change it not time to like to reincorporate that uh, the into the fabric of the universe as the wheel has has laid out for us and land you can feel land getting like increasingly flustered and frustrated <laughs> with like throwing his hands up uh, up in the air like uh, <laughs> Uh, Moraine's just absolute go with the flow mentality for for anyone that shows up and is like I'm I'm joining the fellowship here. Um, I I was gonna say it has a, a has a Buddhist ring to it. Just the like I accept what is in the present and what is is happening and things like that. <laughs> the serenity prayer uh, of Moraine uh, apparently and going off here. <laughs> yeah, I think with the the prologue too. I'm curious because she mentions the past a lot in the different ages. For some reason, I took it very literally. I think at one point they made it sound like there's like a reset. And I know we haven't gotten too deep into it. So like I literally thought like the world gets like almost reset. But it sounds like Hmm. more so it's just different ages and different periods. And there's like a lot of repeating events. But I almost thought it was like a karma cycle where like the world Mm -hmm. or like the universe kind of resets. I don't know if I was taking that too literally. And I can't tell because it's fantasy. So it could almost have like a karma element where characters are reborn. Um, So I don't know. I I can't figure that out because it sounds like there's an element of that because there's this like dragon figure that's reborn constantly but i can't tell if the universe has really reset or if just figures when they die come back so i don't know the extent to that but she's like constantly referencing different ages um of the past and they almost sound like very unique time frames and almost different mm-hmm. worlds so i don't i don't know if it's just a fantastical way of describing past generations but it, they sound very like individual and separate we also start learning from land here some things about the Dark One's minions. For for instance, we learn that uh, crows and carrion eaters are his spies all over the place. And that suddenly brings more significance to maybe some of those ominous portents we had earlier for all the ra- ravens who were staring at, at Rand. And like at one point, it's maybe Matt throws a stone at one and it just like hops to the side and won't fly away in the earlier chapters. Um, 
which now seems, at least according to Land here, maybe more directly, like something's going on on a metaphysical level there, not just not just like a, a metaphorical uh, ravens as harbingers of death or rats or anything that he brings up, but his actual servants of the Dark One. And we also, in another Fellowship of the Rings echo, where, where Moraine is talking about uh, the healing of, of Rand's father, because I guess this is actually where she does it. We find out uh, that he has been stabbed by a Morgul blade, excuse me, here a Shio-Ghul <laughs> blade uh, that carries with it a, a taint from that place, a stain of evil in the metal. So that, you know, potentially why Nynaeve was not anything, not able to do anything about it. These tainted blades, she says, make wounds that will not heal unaided or cause deadly fever, strange sicknesses that medicines cannot touch. Uh, and, and lets Rand know that this will devour his father if she doesn't like at great risk to herself. Um, undergo this like big healing process here. And this, and this is where she brings up um, uh, what others mentioned. And Danny said, we have lost the making of these about the, about the little, the little statue um, and how the Omerlin seat almost didn't allow her to take this one. Yeah. Well, and just, just for our listeners here, I think we are kind of jumping back and forth between chapters eight and 10. So some of the stuff we're describing Caleb, I think actually happens back in chapter eight um, and then deciding to like head out happens in chapter nine. Mm. So we are jumping back and forth a little. So just for like kind of like if if any of our listeners are getting confused, I think for context, a lot of what we've been describing is happening between chapters eight and ten. Uh, which then brings us to a lot of the new things we're introduced to here. We we sort of get a definition of what a border is, and we we've had physical descriptions of of land before, and and his curved sword, and and walking around um, before in his originally sort of like leather armor gear and now he's now he's busted out the chain mail uh, so it seems like they're, they're basically this this order of samurai who are attached to or dedicated to the Aes Sedai and the White Tower I think this is where in chapter 8 we find out what a merdral is and that oh maybe these things are are a little bit different from a ring wraith in some ways and we start to learn about how the dark one might have created these half men or any of the other number of things they call the dark riders and we get reinforced a little bit about who the Dark One is and why people are afraid to say his name, Shayatan, uh, years before the, the Valdemart stuff. Oh, which all of which we talked about last time, which I guess I will I will summarize chapter nine tellings of the wheel. This is a chapter where I think we know almost immediately that Rand is asleep and dreaming or else he's been teleported in some bizarre way that immediately feels very dreamlike of where a dark force that we then discover and he confronts as being the dark one is chasing him over all these like blasted and blighted lands and, and huge scarred uh, canyonscapes up to a beautiful white city. And he, um, he encounters this mountain as black as the loss is all hope. And it gets very poetic and very dreamy. And we have this moment of him outright challenging and, and naming the dark one in this dream. And then the merge roll showing up in this palace that he enters into and being all ominously, we have been waiting for you. Uh, and then he wakes up and Tam convinces Rand uh, to run away with Moraine and, and, and Tam gives him the Heron sword. And this is the moment, I guess, where I jump the gun on a bit of the village mob showing up to conf- confront Moraine with accusations of being a dark friend. So I guess we had, we had the, the, uh, the evil eye symbol, but in this case, the, the, the dragon's fang symbol scrawled on the door before uh, to mark the inn for the fact that they were having Moraine stay there. Uh, but this is where the mob 
forms. And this is where we get the the extreme Galadriel Gandalf moment of of the the villagers are gathering, everyone's getting getting all furious and out for blood and like, get these witches out of here, blah, blah, blah. You know, even though she just saved uh, the village's ass and everything. And she pulls out her staff and she like suddenly is looking and sounding like significantly taller and more imposing than she actually is. There's fire bursting out the ends of her staff as she's spinning around. And and she does this whole like um, men of Manatharan and giving this whole speech about who the two rivers people once were in prior generations and and another huge lore dump in a very a very Galadriel or Gandalf uh, way of 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 the old blood that still runs through them and talking about um, all this very Silmarillion esque lore of the two hundred years of the Trollock War raging and the these were people who lived here. Um, who were uh, like, you know, some of the most courageous in the world. And we learn about their, uh, their queen Eldraine who feels, who feels King Aemon die. And, and, and she just, she's like a powerful wielder of the one power. And she just goes and, and burns out the entire Trolloc army at this point, or most, most of them. And then uh, blows up herself in the process of doing it and and the city uh this this ancient city she goes through all this speech and the fires wink out and everybody is just like awestruck at what happened and um and yeah and that seems to disperse the mob for the moment and at least fill everyone with enough like confusion maybe over what all this was and and uh, what this the spiel they just got was and who moraine might be and maybe also fear at, at see, being reminded again directly of what she can do, and this may be coming back to the whole old, well, if you really think a witch is that dangerous, do you really want to be um, uh, <laughs> com- coming up and making these accusations after you just saw her, like, hurling lightning down to destroy all, all these Trollocs? Uh, what, what do we think of this chapter? Uh, I I think there's another, like, we've been talking about the similarities between, like, Lord of the Rings and, like, other fantasy series with Wheel of Time. And I, I think like the dream sequence itself is a very Lord of the Rings moment. Um, instead of putting it on the ring and seeing the Eye of Sauron, it just it felt so similar mm-hmm. with like the dream he's having with what's his name, Shaitan or whatever, Satan, essentially mm-hmm. pulling him in and telling him to like come to him. It just felt like Frodo looking at the the giant like Mordor eye, um, kind of tracking in on him. So I think there's that the dream sequence is just one of many parallels again that we've been kind of discussing just kind of stood out to me as like the Frodo putting on the ring moment. I kind of have like a question. So I think they kind of talked about it, but maybe I just am dense and didn't get it. But like, why is Moraine here? Because it, people are like so surprised that she's here. And so like, Mm-hmm. clearly she she's on some kind of mission and then when everything goes wrong they're like oh we didn't think this would happen in the two rivers then why are you in the two rivers like what why were you here to begin with have they ever have they explained yet what she was actually doing like how convenient that she showed up in this town with all these you know teenage boys this dude is obsessed with katie dan do we know or do we have do we have any hints yet i don't i'm not sure i have anything good i feel like there was some hint in the chapters we went over last week, but um, but I'm not actually sure. It, it seemed a little bit coincidental to me as well. Yeah, I, I got that. It seemed coincidental because on one hand, they were like talking about how like they were surprised by the attack or like they didn't think that would happen and she was surprised they were able to get the Trollocs out there. Um, mm-hmm. But then she also, she gave the, the coin pieces to the three of them and she seems to know about this, the desire for like the Dark One um, wanting to get one of the three of these Oh, like teenagers that were born on like a similar date 
So they seem mm. to have some picture, like they seem to have some reason to know that Rand and these two others are important to the Dark One, but she hasn't really pieced together how she got that information. Um, so I think I think she's mostly just surprised that they were able to get the Trollocs through like the Border Patrol or like to that specific area. Yeah, and that seems to come back to some of the geography we've had described. And again, I haven't looked at the map this time around, but we, we get the sense that the Trollocs are all up at like the the north end of the world. They're almost like the, you know, like the others behind the border in in a Song of Ice and Fire or a game of a Game of Thrones. And there's uh, all these um, constant battles going on up there. And we don't really have a sense of who it is that is guarding uh, that border, but we do get the sense that is like to get Trollocs here, they had to come down through a lot of countries, like a lot of like densely populated occupied areas. And there haven't been Trollocs here in hundreds of years, I want to say at least, like at least 500. It might have been a much larger number that was mentioned here, like not since the Trolloc Wars. Um, so I, I wonder, this is also the chapter or the set of chapters where we're learning a lot more about the possibility of dark friends and of regular human beings who have pledged themselves to the Dark One, which again, sounds um, that maybe sounds a lot more less like a Lord of the Rings thing and more like a few a few years later, seven years later, we'll get in Harry Potter, uh, the Death Eaters and, you know, all, all these folks who have aligned themselves with with Voldemort for promises of immortality and power. And I think we start to get hints of that here. So my sense is that what we know is that Moraine was here looking for for um, for particular teens born at a particular time and expected the Dark One to be interested in them. But maybe she was expecting like regular ass human beings to be the threat here, spies and and agents and not necessarily an arm an army of these hell creatures from the a, a whole other part of the world where they're not supposed to be able to get beyond and have not gotten beyond for a long long time and that it seems mysterious right now that they've gotten here but maybe we'll find out more about what's really going on and what Moraine hasn't told us because we are informed here I sort of glazed over it at, at several points it might be Tam or it might be the mayor who is like uh, explaining to Rand like yeah, I said I don't lie. They're, they're never gonna. They're never gonna outright tell you a falsehood. But the truth that they tell you is never is also never the truth that you think it is, and maybe not the whole picture of anything. Um, so maybe, yeah, maybe that bears out. Like you know, even the fact that Moraine comes, we were talking about Dan, like your perception of her before versus who she is now. She wasn't in disguise, right? She wasn't lying about who she was when she showed up. But she certainly was not disabusing anybody of the notion that she was just some rich, weird lady uh, tra- traveling around and like overpaying everyone locally for uh, for menial tasks and flashing her her silver coins around. But maybe we'll, we'll maybe we'll find out a bit more of what her agenda is in the next set of chapters. For now, we uh, we wrap up with chapter ten, leave taking. Uh, a very quick chapter. Keely, do you want to describe what happens here in this one? Yeah, so this is when everyone is kind of finally together and are deciding if they're leaving and like feels like the story is like really picking up, which I think is why we kept bouncing between chapters because it was pretty dull until chapter six and then everything happened really fast. Um, so this is where, you know, Egwene and um, Tom kind of show up and they're like, I'm going with. And so they all decide that they're going to go. And it sounds like, did they split off into two different groups at one point? Or did I make that up? I felt like that kind of happened. And this is where um, they make the comment that like, again, about the wolves, like, oh, well, if I heard wolves, I'd know that mm-hmm. there's no Trollocs near, but I don't hear wolves, i.e. Trollocs. <laughs> 
and we basically, yeah, they're they're getting on the road. They're like, okay, we need to get out of here now, right? Because there's there's definitely Trollocs close by. Uh, even if there seems like a little bit of a logical leap there between the uh, the no the no, the wolves don't like Trollocs, ergo no, no wolves equals must be Trollocs. But it seems good to be cautious at this point. You can understand why why Lan is making that conclusion. And yeah, everybody's saddling up and getting out of here. And Egwene refusing to be put off. That no, she's going on this adventure once again. It's part of the pattern. And uh, we're heading out of here and we sort of end with another really ominous portent, something flying above that I hinted at before. We get a name put to it now, another new type of monster. They call a uh, land growls a word sounding as if it left a, ba- a bad taste in his mouth. Drakar or uh, drag Dragkar, Drakar. I'm actually not sure of that one, but it's sure it sure sounds very um much more of a Slavic type word or something akin to there than the uh, the sorts of names we have gotten so far. Uh, and something that um, Egwene asked about it, what, what it is, and Tom's like, um, oh, in the war that ended the Age of Legends, worse things than Trollocs and Halfmen were created. So, you know, we're, we're getting, we're already escalating the scales of threat here. Like, we started off with these huge uh, animal, men, creature things bursting through doors and, and, and smashing villages apart and murdering loads of people, and then we had... Um, the ring wraith like not school type figures with the half men and now we're already finding out there's something even worse that's flying around here and hunting them down and we're on the road and the chase has begun and i guess we'll find out what happens with that next time we will be a little bit longer before the next episode rather than next week it will be likely the week after uh because of a of an important sabbatical that we'll be taking for Dan getting married, finally, uh, with uh, a much, much uh, roadblock put in the way this past year with all, all the world's events, um, which is awesome. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm really excited uh, for you, Dan, and I'm really excited to be there. And that feels like a, a good reason for, uh, for us to pause and, and catch up with some of our reading. When we do meet next time, um, we will be doing the next set of chapters. We will at least get through chapters 11 through 16, if you're leaving along. And we may even make it up through chapter 20. Some exciting stuff is going to be happening in these. We're really moving along here. Anyone have any final thoughts about uh, what we've read this week? I do have to say I really uh, I liked the dream sequence a lot. And, I, and even though it was like a little bit cheesy and I liked all the kind of lore drops that we're getting um, and and the fact that there's just so much after them at this point, it's very it's very exciting. So I think it's a good like set off onto the adventure moment. Can we just talk about how drastically different the pacing came became after chapter five like i know we talked about it p- picking up yeah. but like it was such a chore getting through that and now it feels like it's flowing like a normal book but i was just like is this going to be really dull the entire time it's just like it's almost like it's written by somebody else i i don't i don't know why no one mm. encouraged him to try to figure out how to condense the initial five chapters or fix the pacing because it's such a roadblock to getting people onto the series like i was looking at reviews and apparently people were dropping the book because they're like i gave it a hundred pa- like I, I read a hundred pages and i gave it a chance and if a book can't grab me by a hundred pages and then like is it really 100 pages in and then i looked and it's like it really is and i'm like we're, we're past that now but like until you get to that point it doesn't become as fascinating as it is with like all of like the what katie was, was mentioning with the lore drops and the cool kind of world development they're doing and kind of just like the Aes Sedai and kind of the power they wield and it's getting really interesting and starting to like show its flair and its uniqueness but it took a god awful long time to get there i can't disagree although i will say having come back to it 
now. I have I have some thoughts on the purpose that this really slow beginning serves in the grand scope of things, and not just in the course of the series, but over this novel. I will be curious to see how we feel about it there um, once we've gotten to the end and we see where this fits into the whole, um, at least the first book's story, though I fully agree it does make for a, a slow start compared to what comes after and compared to the kind of pacing we get here especially for for people like you Dan who read earlier Ravens in certain editions of the books and uh and what that did to initial perceptions because you know that's adding like a whole what another 30 pages on, on top of that or, or something in that yeah that, that, neighbor, that's fair neighborhood yeah I, I'd forgotten about that too so that's fair so most folks hopefully aren't getting that treatment before having to jump into the prologue <laughs> so we will see you next time this episode of Wattcast was produced by yours truly. You can find me at twitter.com slash Caleb Wimble. Katie, where can people find you? You can find me at katiejarvis.com or uh, on Instagram at 30 in LA. Dan, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at pansydan. Um, so that's P-A-N-Z-Y-D-A-N. Keely, can people find you? <laughs> I just had this conversation with a coworker. He's like, can I add you on social media? I was like, if you can find me, you can. Um, <laughs> but I do have um, an Instagram for the books that I read. I don't post like every book that I read because I read a lot. But it's uh, Keely underscore reads. Um, mostly just the weird, creepy stuff I like to read. Some of which I am looking forward to reading as well after your description of it. Remember, you can find us all at wattcast.net and support the show at patreon.com slash wattcast. Your support means a lot, even if you're just listening, but even $2 a month on Patreon helps us keep doing this. Join us at the $5 Tar Valentier and you'll get access to those special bonus episodes I mentioned when they come out. You can also support us by leaving Wattcast a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. This does help a lot, like I said last time, and we'll say again, it is the number two way we find listeners the number one way, tell a friend about the show. Word of mouth means the world to us. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening, folks. And remember, this is not the ending. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the wheel of time. But this is an ending. Awesome. And I, I just washed your um, Pyrex, so it's perfect timing. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I, I hope the ice cream went down well. It was very good. <laughs>